Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Lord, I want to welcome you to the Commonwealth Club. Um, It's a, a real honor to have you here. And of course, our viewing audience who tend to be way ahead of me in terms of uh, explanations are, I'm sure, aware of the several pieces that you've written for The Atlantic discussing January 6th as an event, one of them presciently predicting something like uh, January 6th, uh, less than peaceful transfer of power, and the other discussing what we've learned since January 6th about the future threats to democracy that this might involve. And that's really the theme of what we're talking about. We're not talking partisan politics, or we're not talking about who's right and who's wrong, or who's aggrieved and who shouldn't be. What we're talking about is whether our democracy as a system of government and as a system of decision-making for people can survive right now. And there are legitimate threats to that question. And that's more or less where I'd like to focus part our, our discussion today. But let's start with the intuition that you had back in October of 2020 to, to, foresee that there was not going to be for the first time in our history, unless you count 1877, there was not going to be a peaceful transition of power from the former executive to the recently elected executive. What, what, where did that intuition come from? Well, it started with a pretty simple proposition. Uh, it seemed obvious to me and to lots of people, I think, that Donald Trump under no circumstances was going to concede uh, the election if he lost, uh, that he simply doesn't have it in him. Uh, it's it's not in his personality. It's not in his political strategy. Uh, he was going to insist that he had won no matter what and forever. Uh, and once you start with that proposition and ask yourself, what tools does he have available to him? to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power, to prevent the election from being decided against him, uh, it turns out that it's very complicated and there are a lot of possibilities. And I went through as many of them as I could think of. uh, And fundamentally, his objective was always going to be to get the state legislatures in Republican-controlled states that Biden won. uh, And those were the essential swing states. to appoint electors for Donald Trump, even though Biden had won the state election. Let's drill down on that point. Uh, it, it's, it's a little nerdy to start citing articles in the U.S. Constitution, but uh, in this case, I think it's important that we understand that it's not a baseless notion um, from outer space to Um, suggests that state legislatures could, on their own, choose how electors vote, which leads us to, unfortunately, the what we're calling these days the independent state legislature theory. Perhaps you could explain that, because it's such a fundamental part of the groundwork for the rest of our discussion today. So you're right. Article 2 of the Constitution states that each state in the union will 
appoint electors for president in the manner of the legislature's own choosing. They have complete autonomy on that. And in the days of the founders, American citizens did not vote directly for president. Uh, they voted for their state representatives, and the state representatives voted for president. It's been more than 150 years since uh, every state transitioned to a, a popular vote choice. So what we're accustomed to now and what we think of as pretty fundamental to democracy is that uh, you and I each get a vote for president. And our votes determine uh, the appointment of electors in our state. Uh, the idea that uh, Trump's people had was that the legislature in a state like Wisconsin or Michigan or Pennsylvania or Arizona, all of which are Republican-controlled and, uh, and voted for Biden, could take back the power to appoint electors. Now, there's no doubt that a state legislature could uh, pass a law stating that from now on in Wisconsin, uh, the people don't get to vote anymore, and uh, we in the legislature will choose our electors beginning with the next election. It would not be a very popular thing to do. I don't think that any politician would think they could get away with it. But they, they have that power under the Constitution. It's much less clear whether they have the power, and, and actually more than less clear, it, it's highly dubious whether they have the power after an election is, takes place, after the popular votes have been cast to say, never mind, we're going to fire the voters. We are no longer interested in their opinion. We're going to appoint electors by our own lights. There are intermediate positions that you could take on that. And there, the independent state legislature doctrine states that the power of the legislature is plenary or unlimited and unbounded to appoint electors. And therefore, if, for example, county election authorities make any tiny change in the administration of elections that wasn't explicitly authorized by the state legislature, then the legislature can hold uh, that the election did not proceed lawfully and then take back the power to appoint electors. It is a fringe theory, uh, I would say. It's being pushed right now uh, by lawyers affiliated with the Federalist Society. Uh, it is uh, taking advantage of the strategic fact that uh, six or seven of the most important swing states in the country for presidential elections are governed by Republican state legislatures. And so if you give them the power, uh, you are tipping the balance decisively in favor of the Republicans. There are four Supreme Court justices who have shown some sympathy with the independent state legislature doctrine in cases where it wasn't directly on point, but in dicta uh, or in dissent, they've shown sympathy for the idea. Uh, and we don't know what Amy Coney, uh, Coney Barrett thinks. She's never been called upon to opine. So it could be that it comes back to the Supreme Court and uh, something shifts in that direction. Um, yeah, just to add a, a footnote, the uh, Justice Thomas uh, feels that the doctrine is grounded in the Tenth Amendment uh, as opposed to any then in Article Two, which basically says that powers not expressly granted to the federal government or reserved to the state. So that would, if that were the applicable theory, that would give very wide sweep and credence to the right of the state legislature, whoever they are, whether they're Democratic or Republican, to just 
bypass the popular vote and legislate their own set of electors. So I, I just want to bore in on this because that was, at least by my take, and I want to cross-check this with you, one of the underlying theories that stimulated uh, a group of people around Trump to feel as though there was a way to bypass what we'll call the Electoral Vote Count Act and to have Pence basically certify the election uh, for Trump. It took a lot of people to be complicit. And I gather the complicity grew up around a very, uh, some of it was just a right, uh, they just want to stay in power and keep their job. But a lot of the support that was external to the uh, uh, that day of certification one year ago today was um, the theory the election was stolen. And I'm curious when we say the election was stolen or stopped to steal or whatever phrase you want to use, what were, what were the demographics of the people who actually found the motivation to go to the Capitol and at least at the minimum protest and at the maximum sit in Nancy Pelosi's office with their feet up on the table? Well, it's an interesting group. And you have to distinguish uh, between uh, what Trump supporters believe and what their elected leaders, the leaders of the Republican Party believe. I am quite convinced that if you were able to administer truth serum to Republican senators and members of Congress and governors and state legislators, uh, the vast majority of them understand that Joe Biden won the last election. Uh, and they are either afraid to say so or opportunistically leaping upon the bandwagon of the stolen election uh, in order to carry favor uh, with the Trump electorate. But a great many, tens and tens of millions of Trump supporters have been driven honestly to believe that the election was stolen. Uh, they are convinced by the floodgates of propaganda that have come out of their, their leadership and have come out of Fox News and One American News, uh, social networks that they're part of. Uh, I spent weeks and weeks in conversation with this one Trump supporter uh, for my latest magazine piece when I was trying to plumb the roots of his belief on this. And it was unshakable, uh, no matter how much evidence I brought to him, that his reasons uh, were incorrect. So the people who came to the Capitol were number one true believers. They, they were not typical of the profile of, uh, of politically violent people in the past. In U.S. history, including quite recent U.S. history, uh, and actually around the world, according to experts who study this, political violence is committed largely by young men uh, in their 20s, disproportionately unemployed, uh, low educated, poor prospects in society. That is not at all what we saw on January 6th. Uh, what we saw was very much a middle class, educated, employed, um, mean age was 42 years old, uh, which is wildly out of sync with uh, history on, on this thing. And what it, what it shows is that we have a politically violent mass movement in America now for the first time since about 100 years ago with the rise of the second Ku Klux Klan. Uh, you have tens of millions of Americans who are prepared to tell pollsters 
uh, that violence is justified to restore Trump to power. Uh, that is a, a terrifying figure to me uh, and, uh, and one that shows considerable degree of collapse of our governing institutions. What about where these people live? Um, I don't, these people isn't a fair way to put it. The, the, the committed people who went to the Capitol that day, I, conventionally on a multiple choice test, I would have checked there from rural, predominantly red states. I gather that's actually the wrong answer. It is the wrong answer, and it's fascinating. The there's a there's a group at the University of Chicago called Seapost that uh, went through all the records uh, and other public records and found the home county for each of the now more than 700 defendants in the capital cases. They are much more urban than rural. They are not likely to come from heavy Trump voting counties. Uh, they're likeliest to come from counties where the vote was very close uh, and they're frustrated. Many of them came from Biden counties where Biden had won by a small margin. And if you go through all the demographics and characteristics of the counties, they, they were interested. Maybe they come from counties where unemployment is high. No, not true. Maybe they come from counties uh, where education is low. No, not true. What they come from is counties where the proportion of the white non-Hispanic population is on the decline. I just say if, if there are fewer white people now in your county than there were five or 10 years ago, you are much more likely to have come from there and headed to the Capitol uh, and taken part in the insurgency on January 6th. And that fits with polling data that shows that people who share the beliefs of the January 6th insurgents, uh, and there are two key beliefs, one being that Joe Biden stole the election, the other being that violence is justified uh, to set that right. They also, by a supermajority, uh, believe that black and brown people are replacing white people in terms of position, power, and status in this country. They're a believer in a theory called the Great Replacement, which has been, for example, uh, pushed by Tucker Carlson on Fox News. The idea that, uh, that in his, his version of it, uh, that Democrats are deliberately uh, trying to uh, increase the number of so-called third world immigrants to this country to replace white voters and to change the nature of this country. Uh, of the, of the uh, 21 million people who agree with the January 6th insurgents, uh, two-thirds of them believe in the Great Replacement. So there is a significant amount of racial resentment behind all this. That for, Let's assume that we are trying to formulate policies, we being the Democrats, the Republicans, the independents, policies that are going to bring some kind of a reconciliation of, of these, uh, the, this polarized world that we live in, similar to the way, not to get too far from the topic, but the way Lincoln approached the end of the Civil War, it was not um, to put all of the Confederates in jail and um, put Rob, make Robert E. Lee a criminal. It was to to give them their horse and their gun and say, "Go home and let's let's form an, a new nation." Um, and 
you know, in an optimal, perhaps naive view of what could be the best future, it would be some kind of a of a reconciliation like that. But how does the Democratic Party, because they're the only functioning party right now, at least from what I can see, um, how do they develop a political strategy that can embrace those people rather than saying, oh, you're stupid, you believe this, that's so obviously false, how can you think that, and basically shaming them. In other words, we have to find a policy that doesn't shame, but recalibrates how we look at um, our social responsibility to each other. I guess that's a question. <laughs> that, <laughs> that calls for an extraordinary kind of political leadership that I don't see immediately on the horizon. But I wonder about your analogy, uh, and I'm making this up on the fly, so that's probably a mistake. But our situation now is is not like the one in which uh, North and South uh, fought about whether slavery was good or bad or acceptable or necessary. Uh, it's almost as though right now we're fighting about whether slavery even existed. And you have half the country saying, what's slavery? Uh, because you have half the country, or not, not half, but 40%, uh, that says, despite all the evidence, uh, that Joe Biden lost the last election and believes fairy tales that are completely departing from the empirical world about what really happened with, you know, Italian satellites and dead Venezuelan dictators changing votes uh, and taking over election machinery and, and uh, nonsense like that. You, if you have polarization on the basic foundations of knowledge, uh, it's a very hard thing to see how to bridge those gaps. Yeah, I, I agree with your um, polite uh, um, qualification of my parallel, because the Confederacy did not deny Lincoln was elected. They just uh, didn't like Lincoln's policies. And that's a, that's right. I agree, that's a different paradigm. Um, what I, but what I'm addressing is, and maybe there isn't an answer to this, um, but we're not going to win um, back the the health of democracy by making one side admit they were wrong and and misled and stupid. We're going to win it back by having people realize that fundamentally as a nation, we have to live with the fact that we have disagreements and we have to live with the fact that some of the problems for democracy to solve, like economic inequality or the effects of globalization, so forth, are challenging and, and neither side really has the answer to it. But that, that has to be a common goal to use a, an agreed upon system of government. So what I worry about is if people are so embedded in the correctness of their position, people like you um, or Ann Applebaum or George Packer or many of the other authors at The Atlantic can write very erudite uh, articles describing the problem. But how many people's minds will 
you change by describing the problem. Yeah, you know, the political scientists who study this right now uh, say that although there are significant differences in policy among Americans uh, on the two sides, uh, they are not as fundamentally split on policy questions, uh, on what we should be doing. They are split affectively. Uh, that is to say, they hate each other. The polarization of of hatred is much stronger than the polarization of policy, to the point where many people are convinced that only violence can solve the problem. Of course, the question I would ask is, how does violence solve the problem? Yeah, well, I mean, another civil war is not happening because we're not divided geographically. There's no north and south. As as we just said, the, the, the insurrectionists from January 6th came from cities, and they came from places where Biden won. They're living um, among us. Uh, if us is uh, people who are not part of that, there won't be a civil war, but uh, there could be a lot of chaos. It, it's always dangerous to quote facts that you read without cross-checking it, but I'll quote it anyway, that the more people in New York City voted for Trump than in North Dakota and South Dakota combined. So, you know, that just goes to your point about geography. It's it's not as though, as with the civil war, for our civil war, um, it was easy to draw a geographical line uh, across the somewhere between Maryland and New Jersey. But let's go back to the fact about ineluctable truth, because it strikes me that if we can't overcome the existence of alternative realities that we we can't stop hating each other because we can't have a dialogue because we're not even starting from a from the same factual premises do, do you have a sense that you could articulate as to what was in the way of his having an open mind to the possibility that maybe some what of you were saying might be partially true so this guy's a firefighter. He's the same age I am. Uh, he's a retired firefighter, was a captain in the uh, New York City Fire Department. Uh, he lives in the Bronx, where, by the way, uh, the white population has declined by 2% since the last census. He's had a lot of uh, objections over the years to affirmative action uh, in the fire department and the arrival of uh, minorities and women in, in the fire department force. And he showed up wearing his full dress uniform, which, by the way, he wasn't supposed to do, uh, at a political event uh, in in favor of the January 6th defendants, justice for January 6th. What would have been a completely fringe group, which has now been embraced by many uh, Republican elected officials, that says that, uh, that the January 6th uh, defendants are being oppressed and are patriots and uh, need to be released. And he said he knew the election was stolen. I said, so let's, if you're willing to work with me here, let's talk about how you know that. And he was open-minded and uh, it seemed, and certainly willing to go through the motions of it. He said, well, just for example, only 141 million people voted and Donald Trump got 63 million votes. That doesn't leave enough votes for Biden to have won. That doesn't leave enough to get to Biden's alleged 74 million. 
Uh, there's 14 million missing voters here. That right away proves that something went badly wrong with the election. I said, how do you know that? He said, well, I don't know. My sister told me. Uh, and where did she get it? She got it. She doesn't, she doesn't remember where she got it. Actually, I had him go and check. Uh, but I tracked it down that, that, that those figures uh, originated in, uh, in an obscure right-wing website. Uh, and they just mixed up the numbers. The, it, it's imaginable that it was a careless error and not deliberate. But since it was immediately corrected by lots of people and continued to be said, I, it doesn't look like it was an honest error. Uh, they were they were comparing apples and oranges, and the number of people who voted was much more than 141 million. Uh, the official counts, there were actually more than enough votes to account for Biden and Trump because there were a number of spoiled ballots and there were third-party ballots and so forth. In other words, there's nothing to this. Um, you could show, look, they, they took this figure from the wrong column. Uh, here's the original source. Here's the page number. Take a look. That made no impression on him. He said... Well, you know, I can't get into all the facts and figures, but that's what I heard. And anyway, there's so much more proof that the election was stolen. So he uh, he told me that the violence on January 6th was caused by a combination of Antifa and, weirdly, U.S. special forces who were coming in there under the uh, under the uh, guidance of Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell, by the way. Somehow they were in cahoots. Uh, to get special forces to come in and uh, and commit violence. And I said, that sounds wild. Uh, where'd that come from? And he said, you got to go uh, look up a general name, so-and-so, on, uh, on Rumble, the right-wing YouTube site. And so I find the general on Rumble, and he does say this. And so I called him up. I called the general. Uh, he's a retired general. He's been out of the Air Force for 30 years. He's well into his 80s. And I say to him, how do you know there were special forces there? And he said, well, they looked like special forces. Uh, he had a witness who was on the scene, who saw guys presumably with short haircuts and looking physically fit and decided they must be special forces. How do you know it was Antifa? He said his witness told him that uh, one of these young men said, we're playing Antifa today. Uh, he said that they'd stolen Nancy Pelosi's laptop. How do you know that? Well, they had something square looking under their coat. Well, how would you even know it's a computer, let alone that it was Nancy Pelosi's? He, in other words, he didn't even pretend to have evidence uh, for his speculations. And not only that, but his son called me up afterward and said, in as many words, my dad's lost a few steps. Uh, he's getting old. He's starting to say things that don't make any sense to me, and we wish you wouldn't... <laughs> interview him anymore. Uh, I tell all this to the firefighter and he just doesn't believe it. I, I mean, he, he heard an authority. It's, he sounded good on the tape and he, and, uh, and it, it, there's motivated reasoning, right? I mean, you know, this is a guy who uh, wanted Trump to win and everybody he knows wanted Trump to win. And when you're, and when he gets on social media, he's surrounded only by people who want Trump to win. It's actually begins to become inconceivable that there are any large number of people in the world who don't want Trump to win. Uh, and that whole self-reinforcing uh, media ecosystem uh, makes him, as far as I can tell, unreachable. And it's huge. 
I mean, the self-reinforcing ecosystem. I mean, I live in one myself I uh, on different policy issues, but I tend to watch the same television stations and watch, read the same newspapers and read the same magazine articles as my friends, and we call each other and talk about them. And it seems that one of our fundamental structural problems is we have created two nations with separate self-reinforcing ecosystems. My gratuitous take on the way it looks to me. So let's talk again. I, the basic theme here is the challenge to our democracy and its ability to preserve the fun. To me, what is a fundamental quality of democracy is is the use of elections to choose your representatives and public confidence that those representatives have been fairly and honestly selected. So what steps has the Republican Party been taking starting before January 6th, in a sense, but mostly after January 6th of 2022, make it so that perhaps the person with the fewer votes can actually win? What are some of the right in front of our face steps that are being taken? Well, the first step is uh, a very consistent and powerful and charismatic uh, and demagogic message being transmitted and reinforced and reinforced that you cannot trust the institutions of the election to call balls and strikes, that the norms we've always valued in this country, uh, that we cast our ballots and uh, they're counted cleanly uh, with vanishingly few exceptions. That's all thrown away. And if you undermine public confidence uh, in, in, the, uh, in the election apparatus, then that's, that's job one. And Trump stated many times before the election that the only way he could lose would be if Biden cheated, uh, that there was no possibility he could lose in a fair election. What's happened is that Republican operatives around the country have now studied carefully what worked and what didn't work when Trump tried to overthrow a free and fair election last time. And they found all the obstacles that got in Trump's way, and they are systematically going about uprooting those obstacles. And so when you have uh, county clerks uh, or secretaries of state uh, in the different states uh, or election commissions, election authorities who certified the Biden vote and refused pressure from Trump to change that, uh, those people are being hounded out of office. They're subjected to massive numbers of death threats. Uh, if they're in elected positions, then Trump and his people are uh, primarying them and trying to uh, make sure that they won't be elected again. Uh, and if they can't do any of those things, they're changing the law so that those people no longer have the power to certify elections. Uh, let's take an example in Georgia where they're doing all of the above. Uh, Brad Raffensperger was secretary, is secretary of state. Famously, uh, and it became public uh, with a recording, uh, Trump called him up and tried to get him to change the result. Um, they counted three times in Georgia. Uh, and after they counted three times and found that Biden won, Trump called up Raffensperger and, and demanded that he find more votes for Trump and change the result. And Raffensperger refused. Uh, what's happened since then? Uh, Trump has endorsed someone to run against Raffensperger. Uh, in the coming election. And meanwhile, the Republican state legislature, 
has turned against Raffensperger, who is a re lifelong Republican. And uh, they have changed the law so that he, the Secretary of State, no longer has the power to certify elections in the state of Georgia. Uh, they've also changed the law so that they, the legislature, controlled by Republicans, can fire the county supervisor of elections in any county uh, in the state of Georgia and substitute an administrator of their choice if they believe that the county supervisor is not doing a good job. And uh, what county were they talking about when they debated this uh, bill? They were talking about Fulton County, uh, which is Atlanta, which is the Democratic stronghold in the state of Georgia. Uh, and so they're trying to uh, bust him out of office by electing someone else. And the someone else is running explicitly on a platform that Georgia should not have certified its election for Biden, that the election should have been overturned. This is an extraordinary thing for even one person to do. And there are, uh, by a recent count in the Washington Post, I think it was 163 people running for election-related offices around the country right now who are running explicitly on the platform of the big lie uh, that Trump really won. Uh, and if you're running to be in charge of counting votes and you're announcing that you would have counted the votes for Trump when they really went to Biden, uh, something is really wrong with this picture. Or else you have... Um, you're counting on the alternative reality that we talked about before, that that will, in fact, get you votes if you're willing to rectify the crime of a stolen election in 2020. Right. It, uh, it is a vote-getting strategy that is likely to work very well with Republican primary electorates. It is a catastrophic fact that two-thirds of all Republicans believe the election was stolen. Uh, the more politically active they are, the more likely they are to believe that. This is why so many elected politicians are afraid to admit that Biden won the election. Uh, they will be punished. Uh, they will be punished electorally, and they worry about their families because uh, if you are put in the crosshairs of Trump or of Fox News opinion hosts, you can expect a large number of uh, threats in person, on the phone, by email uh, to you and your family. Yeah. there And there's no upside to it. I mean, it's not like you gain something by taking that position. It's just all downside. There was another situation that I remember at the time involving the Michigan Certification Board where there were four people on it. Tell us about that, because that's another... That shows how down into the grassroots this movement goes. So in the state of Michigan, each county has a, a four-person commission uh, that accepts the reports from all the precincts uh, and gets columns of figures and votes and says everything looks to be in order and we're hereby certifying. It's two Democrats and two Republicans. And these things have uh, traditionally uh, operated on a bipartisan basis. Uh, and then there's a statewide version of the same thing. And Trump was just barely too late to stop the certification of the vote around Detroit. The, uh, the county commission uh, Republicans uh, voted to certify the election. Uh, and then they got a call from Trump. And then after this strong arming by the president, uh, they tried to change their vote and retract their certification. Now, it turns out that in Michigan law, there's no such thing as retracting your certification. Uh, and so that didn't 
work for them. Trump then went to the statewide board where there were two Republicans and two Democrats. Uh, and one Republican uh, was willing to go along and say he would refuse to certify the election. Uh, so it all came down to the shoulders of a guy whose name I think is Vandeveld, uh, Aaron Vandeveld. And he looked at the facts and the figures and the circumstances and said, there's nothing here to raise any doubt about the outcome. The people of Michigan have voted for Biden for president. Uh, and he certified. And then he went into hiding. And since then, he's been hounded out of office uh, and replaced by a more reliable Republican uh, who will be available next time uh, to put sand in the machinery. Uh, and this is happening all around the country. Uh, uh, Democrats are not paying as much attention to the local election machinery, and the Republicans are paying a great deal of attention to it at every level from uh, from sort of the, the local election supervisor, which is even a, sometimes a voluntary job, all the way up to Secretary of State and Attorney General in these states. Yeah, I'd like to I'd like to go to that point because when I watch, uh, I I sense a tremendous sense of non urgency in the Democratic Party. Now I have to concede that my information always comes through media or print or so forth. So I'm not sitting in the halls of Congress. Uh, but uh, Biden back in July, I believe it was, made a speech about how election integrity is the core democracy and it's one of the most important matters that his his government, including the attorney general's office, can be addressing. But then I haven't seen much happen other than we're now trying to figure out how to get Joe Manson to change the filibuster rule. Yeah, you're right about Biden's speech. He went to the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, and he stood under this great big reproduction of the preamble, you know, we the people in that fancy script. And he said something even stronger. He said that the efforts by unnamed persons, because he's unwilling to say Trump or Republican in this context. But he said the efforts to subvert election machinery is the gravest threat to our democracy since the Civil War. That is an extraordinarily big thing for a president of the United States to say. And you would expect that if a president sees the gravest threat to democracy since the Civil War, he's going to be marshalling his powers uh, of persuasion and otherwise uh, behind an effort to meet that threat. And that's what we haven't seen uh, from Biden. He is recently, um, as the January 6th anniversary came upon us, uh, been talking more about it and talk again about it today. Uh, and he's speaking in very firm tones. And it may be that he's now prepared to give this as high a priority as he's given to the infrastructure bill or uh, the Build Back Better Act and, and so forth. And it's true that he's had a difficult hand to play because federal legislation is part of the answer. And uh, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema are not willing to change the filibuster rules so far. Uh, and there's not one Republican vote for those voting, voting rights bills uh, that would address part of the problem. But I think any president of the United States knows what his powers are. He knows what he can do. He has the has ability uh, to give his time and effort and energy and the resources of the presidency to a problem. If he's prepared to treat this as the national emergency that I think it is, 
uh, and we'll be seeing evidence of that in the months to come. I mean, we have two elections coming up, and we should differentiate that 2022 is going to be important for who controls the um, House and the Senate, and then 2024, of course, is for the presidency. But if he cannot get a, vo a voting rights bill through that at least creates the the philosophy of one person, one vote, and fair representation, and you know a, a lot of the phrases we like to talk about when we uh, we praise our system of government. The Build Back Better and the infrastructure bills and all those things don't matter. They're they're gone. They're 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 toast because a Republican controlled executive and or um, legislative are, are going to cancel it. So I don't understand the triaging, I guess. I don't know why the voting rights bill isn't, by some exponential factor, the highest priority uh, for the executive branch right now. Yeah, look, pre presidents can never do just one thing. And fixing the economy, addressing COVID, absolutely huge, huge responsibilities of the president. And he could not have uh, ignored and they took huge efforts uh, to make progress on. But uh, I do believe he needs to give comparable degree of effort uh, and first priority going forward to the, the, the creation of the machinery of election theft by a significant fraction of the Republican Party and, and, and to the, the uh, growth of a mass political movement that is tolerant of violence in this country, which is a cancer. Uh, and uh, if he's not addressing those things, then then the risks that our democracy um, unravels are meaningful. I mean, one thing, when you distinguish between the 2022 election and the 2024, the control of Congress will make an enormous difference, potentially, in the outcome of the presidential election two years later. When Trump was trying to overthrow the vote uh, when he was trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power to the victor of the election, he targeted at the end, the reason why January 6th is a, a big anniversary for us, he targeted the electoral vote count in Congress. That was the final stage in certifying the, uh, the election before inauguration. He was limited in his options because Republicans did not control both houses of Congress. If Republicans take control of both houses of Congress, then they will have control over how the vote is counted. Um, he tried to get Mike Pence to do something he had no legal authority to do, to do any of several things that he had no legal authority to do because he didn't have the House and the Senate in his hands. But if Republicans control uh, which electors to recognize, uh, then they can, they can control the outcome of the election. And that's our Electoral Vote Count Act that uh, defies, uh, and the 12th Amendment, that defy reading by normal people. But there's another element there, too, as well, but, and that is the way uh, an election where nobody gets a majority of the electoral votes gets decided. It goes to the House, and each state gets one vote, and the Republicans control the House in terms of number of states, so that, that you would elect a Republican president under the system of neither 
candidate getting 270 votes. That was one of the several strategies uh, that uh, Trump's legal brain trust came up with for Mike Pence uh, a year ago today, uh, that he would simply reject the electoral uh, slate from uh, several states, claiming that they were uh, they were they were uh, fraudulent uh, slates that were chosen by uh, a flawed process. Send the votes back to the states, which there's no such thing as uh, under the Constitution, but uh, that's what they wanted him to do. And then neither party would have received 270 votes. At that point, according to the 12th Amendment. As you say, the election goes to the House of Representatives and the House votes by state delegation. Uh, And even though the Democrats controlled the House, Republicans controlled 26 of the 50 state delegations there uh, because of the way uh, the arithmetic worked out. And so they would have presumably voted uh, for Trump, notwithstanding the Electoral College voting for Biden. Uh, that was that was one of the strategies uh, that uh, Pence refused to carry out. And it's another reason why 2022 matters. One of the observations we're forced to make about democracy is how much of it, it relies on custom and courtesy, and there are not precise rules like you find in the Internal Revenue Code about how elections are held or what happens. So, for example, let's suppose Pence had chosen to follow Trump's advice and refused to certify the election. This is a rhetorical question, but who could have done something about that? Somebody would have, and it would have probably eventually gotten worked out, but there's nothing that covers that, right? Because we never conceive in the way the Constitution and the Electoral Count Vote Act is written that that could happen. There are people who've tried to game out every one of those scenarios, uh, and they're all a huge mess. So uh, under one scenario, I mean, if if Pence had tried to do that and said the election now goes to the House, Nancy Pelosi, as Speaker of the House, uh, would have said, no, it doesn't. Uh, And she controls the procedures of the House and controls the floor and would have been able to thwart that in all likelihood up to a certain point. Uh, And if no president was selected uh, and certified by Congress, then the person who would be the acting president of the United States would be Nancy Pelosi. There, there was that scenario uh, among many that, that, that went through this. We didn't have one referee who could say the game's over, go home, you lost. That's the point. Yeah, there's nobody in charge, ultimately. You know, the Supreme Court isn't in charge. They're, they, they would characterize much of this as political questions. Um, and so it's a, it's a structural defect in our governmental system that we're not going to fix right now. But I do want to talk about how we fix the bigger problem of trying to work towards a single set of facts. And it, it it's kind of bringing the responsibility back to you and others in your profession as to the role of journalism in essentially the protection of truth and the protection of our democratic system of government. 
it's a job that I'm not sure I know how to do. I've, I've, I've grown up in journalism uh, with the faith that I could speak to, I could write for people on the fence, um, who, that there were enough people who, who wanted to know the facts, and that if I showed my work, I displayed my evidence, uh, I did my best to tell the truth, I um, explained how and why I had uncovered certain facts, that I could reach people. And that there would be a critical mass of people who would respond to that. And, and, you know, it, and I'm imperfect and uh, can get things wrong. And uh, somebody might prefer another journalist or another news organization or another account. Uh, but in the marketplace of ideas, if you um, if you laid all these things out there, that society would find its way. And there would always be dissidents and people who disagreed. But facts are facts. And, and I don't have that faith anymore. Uh, and I don't know what to do about it. Uh, I write for The Atlantic, and uh, it's very important to the mission of The Atlantic since the 19th century uh, that we be of no party or clique, that we're not on one side or the other, uh, that we're telling it as straight as we can. But I know that those Trump voters are not, by and large, reading The Atlantic, and I don't know how to reach them. Right. I grew up in journalism believing that you have to show... Uh, all sides, uh, that you have to keep uh, perspective and opinion out of a, a straight news story, and, and so on. And I never in my life uh, wrote things the way I've written them in the past 16 months. But the Trump years have showed us that uh, we do have to take sides to one degree. That is to say, as journalists, we're allowed to be on one side when it comes to the truth. We're allowed to be on the side of the truth. And we're allowed to call a lie a lie. Uh, and journalists have become much more aggressive about that in an era when Trump told 10,000 documented lies during his presidency and is incapable of being shamed about it. Uh, and he's got a superpower that way. I mean, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's remarkably good at it. He's good at it in a way that I haven't seen any other politician able to duplicate. I mean, anybody would like to be able to get away with anything and uh, never apologize, never explain, uh, move on to the next subject, but uh, nobody's pulled it off the way he had. And so it becomes the responsibility of journalists to identify a lie. And we're also allowed to be on the side of democracy. We're allowed to be on the side of uh, the people get to vote and get to make a choice and uh, no one gets to overturn their vote. Uh, that's a value that that we're allowed to stand behind. And that's what the journalism I've been doing in the Atlantic for the past year and a half has been uh, pro-democratic in the small d democratic sense. Uh, and I've been warning quite sharply uh, that we're in trouble and need to do something about it. Yeah. There, in public opinion polling, uh, there is paradoxically a split uh, between red and blue, which Republicans, uh, Trump voters, believe that there is a significant grave threat to our democracy because they believe the election was stolen. Uh, Democrats right now are not especially exercised about it. Much smaller numbers of Democrats believe there's an existential threat to our democracy when exactly the reverse is the case. And in fact, the belief of the Republicans that the election was stolen is itself one of the greatest threats to our democracy. Yeah, because it, it energizes the grassroots. 
and I don't sense what is energizing grassroots on on what we'll call the democratic slash independent side of the equation, other than arguing about you know what should be in Build Back Better or what shouldn't be in there and issues like that. Um, and without that energy, it's it's not a fair fight. I have one more point, Bart, that I want to get to. Um, and that is the outcome of the January 6th commission. How do, you, how do you see that playing out? I don't mean what their report is. I mean, the, the impact that I, their report will have on public opinion. Well, there are a few things to say about it. Uh, first of all, uh, we can be certain that the commission will or the committee will report uh, not later than November of this year because uh, they are aware they're aware that uh, their life as a committee is at risk uh, in the next election. Uh, that if the Republicans take control of the House, that the committee will simply be disbanded. And if the uh, report is at the printer waiting for the machines to start, uh, the machines <laughs> will not start. So uh, they will report uh, before Congress can change hands. Uh, Republicans and Trump are doing their best to delegitimate the committee. Uh, they are uh, going to uh, say it's all a struggle for political advantage. And I think uh, there is... Uh, Something to say that's in, in common between the committee and, 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 and journalism, which is that startling facts have a power of their own. The committee is already showing signs of discovering important evidence about the overall plot to overthrow the election, not just exactly what happened inside the Capitol on January 6th, but what led up to it and how that fit into a larger plan to overthrow the election. Uh, and and yes, that pre-existed January sixth, uh, and and subpoena power is a marvelous thing. I've often wished for it as a journalist. Uh, they they are you know even even in the course of uh, not fully cooperating with the committee, you know, uh, uh, the former chief of staff Meadows has handed over six or seven thousand pages of documents. Uh, that's an extraordinary cache of material, uh, and they are finding out things that nobody knows. Uh, and they will be able to tell a quite compelling tale. What they're doing could equally be done by the Justice Department in the context of a criminal investigation. Uh, as far as we know, that's not happening. We don't know for sure, because it's possible the Justice Department has grand juries working in secret and unannounced investigations, uh, but it's harder and harder to believe uh, that there is a major Justice Department investigation into the effort to overthrow the election, because you would expect, if there were, that it would collide with the January 6th committee, and that there would be times when uh, there would be questions about whether, for example, to immunize a witness for the committee uh, when uh, the Justice Department might not want them immunized because they want them prosecuted. So uh, the committee can make recommendations for criminal prosecution, but honestly, uh, Merrick Garland doesn't need the committee or anyone else to tell him what's out there. Uh, if he's not going after it, he's not going after it. Yeah. Well, um, I hope that 
we can hope. And that's, I guess, the most we can wish for. But I want to thank you and congratulate you and the Atlantic for devoting as much effort and, and careful thought as you do into these problems. They're, they're not partisan problems. The issue of a functioning democracy affects both sides. Uh, uh, I'm going to suggest autocracy does not, in the long run, benefit anyone. And that could be the net outcome of a declination of our democracy. So what you're doing is important. And I want to thank you for spending this time with us and, and keep, on, keep on writing. Thank you very much. It's been a great conversation. Appreciate it, Mark, very much. And thank you to the audience. And with that, the Commonwealth Club is virtually adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.